0: Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk.
1: Never stop
2: learning.
0: At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing.
1: Get my notepad out
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And
0: he's again, (laughs) who is
2: he?
0: NSL Double Talk featuring chefs Bill Telepan and David Pasternak. Today's topic, the fisherman, the chef, and the latest in restaurant trends. Bill is the executive chef at Oceana and one of New York's leaders in sourcing quality ingredients from small farms and local purveyors. His restaurant experience includes some of the world's top kitchens, such as Chef Alain Chapelle's three Michelin star restaurant in France, and New York's Le Cirque and Le Bernardin. His cookbook, Inspired by Ingredients, celebrates his commitment to using the finest ingredients, combined with classic technique and contemporary influences. His beloved Upper West Side restaurant, Telepan, earned him a loyal following and a Michelin star. In 2017, Bill became the first-ever Director of Sustainability at the Institute of Culinary Education. David is the creator of New York's seafood mecca, ESCA, the man whom the New York Times called the fish whisperer scours the globe in search of the best seafood. A 2004 James Beard Foundation Best Chef Award winner and an avid fisherman, David has been known to bring his own morning catch into the restaurant for service. His approach to food is deceptively complex in its simplicity. David's cookbook, The Young Man and the Sea, is a testament to his philosophy with many of the recipes consisting of only three or four ingredients. In 2009, David launched Catch of the Day, a Long Island-themed seafood stand at City Field. His adventures in restaurants and on the water are the subject of Pesca, a series on the World Fishing Network. We are so excited to welcome Bill Telepen and David Pasternak to NSL Double Talk.
2: All right, I got one great David story because- i scared. No, no, it was pretty wild. So there was a point when I was a sous chef at Gotham Barn Grill many, many years ago, and we would use a lot of swordfish. And it was kind of gnarly, and you know, like sometimes there's like, you know, parasites in fish. I mean, that's just a natural in thing. In all fish, right? But swordfish in particular sometimes gets those giant worms. And there was a period of time where we were using it at Gotham Barn Grill where I just kept butchering the fish, and I kept seeing them. And then there was a point I talked to Alfred Portalia, who was the chef at the time. And I said, You know, we should, this is really, we should think about not use. And I swore to myself, I would never eat swordfish again. Fast forward to about when did I start doing the Gambino Hospital? Uh, Event at Danielle. That always happens every year in October. So maybe when I had telepan. I'm doing it 18 years. You're doing it 18 years. So I probably did it like about, say, 10 years ago. And David uh, is serving swordfish crudo, right? And I was just, and he comes over. He's like, hey, how you doing? You know, we always feed each other at these events. And David drops swordfish crudo down and some other fabulous crudo that he does, and I was just like, "Oh shoot, I should try this just because it's David." And you know, I trust that he gets the freshest stuff. And and I did, and it changed my life about swordfish because then I started working with a program called Doctor Dish, which brings fish from a fisherman. One particular fisherman a week. Do you work with them at all? Have you I, know them? The guys, I know the guys, I know them well. So I started was using. I tell them one week it was swordfish, and I was like damn and i had never served it at my restaurant yet and then i had to serve it and what i was doing at that time when i would get the fish and i would serve one raw one cooked dish and so i said what do i do with the swordfish so am i going to serve it raw and is anybody kind of come into my restaurant and ate it and they did and i thought i made a nice dish with it and you've changed my way of thinking about swordfish
1: david thank you this
2: time of year it's good yeah
1: you know, it's cold water. They're eating, you know, anchovies or, you know, whatever they're, whatever they're eating. And they're fatty. And right. They don't have nearly as much parasites as the stuff that comes to like down south. And, right. And, this, and the
2: parasite are, situation is because of the warmer weather, do you think?
1: Parasites, some, there's some different theories about worms and parasites. A lot of the fishermen say the worms are from the seal population. So what happens is the seals, when they shit, like cod and some other fish, eat off of the bottom. Right. And that's where the worms
2: are coming from. I see. That's interesting. I, I See, I didn't know. That. See, the thing is, I took over Ocean around three years ago, so I was more of a vegetable meat guy. And David is more definitely a fish guy, for sure. Um, yeah, you're, you're like, you know, you're, you fish. <laughs> I looked in my boat yesterday. I tried to find somebody to go
1: clamming with me yesterday morning, but nobody wanted. Nobody wanted to go. Even Big Al was like, "Isn't it cold out? It's be Beautiful out today. No wind. Great tide. We're coming onto a moon. Lots of clams."
2: And one of the the, the thing is there's the thing that you do. You bring your fish. You're able to use it, right? Some stuff, right. yes. Some stuff. Some right. stuff,
1: depending on what the licenses are.
2: So if as long as it's a legal fish to yes. fish, you're yes. able to, we're yes. able to do it. I'm glad you said that. What I like to do using the doc dish is that I know for sure that it's like it was coming out of the water like that day before that morning or whatnot and then coming to me. And that's got to be something that makes it extra special for oh, you course. At, at ESCA.
1: You know, you brought up striped bass. Now, there's a subject that's going to be a very interesting subject. Going forward, yes, because there's been a lot of public hearings with the DEC Department of Environmental Conservation about changing a lot of the rules and regulations about striped bass. Right now, the, the basic rule for a recreational fisherman is anything over 28 inches, and for a commercial fishermen, it's 26 to 36. That's the slot, right? Right. They're talking about making it 24 to 34 for recreational which is good let the big fish go right but the real challenge is you're talking about changing about all the kinds of hooks that you can catch them with so like right now we catch them we troll for them we use spoons and you know we use big treble hooks and we you know we use treble hooks and we use all these mojos I have no idea what you're talking about
2: but all these
1: different kinds of lures (laughs) and different kinds of things to catch them They would only allow one kind of hook, which is called a circle hook, which is a hook that these Japanese fishermen developed for keeping fish alive. Oh, interesting. And they're super sharp. They don't do collateral damage. They basically go in and out quickly because of the way the hook, and they're very easy to get back out. Right. But it would definitely change the entire way the fisheries operated from
2: a fishing standpoint. And that's because there's not going to be enough out there, or I mean, it's harder to catch. Like this or-
1: year, the spring fishery was very good. A lot of big fish. Right. The fall, I was somebody put a hex on me <laughs> for a little bit, and I was only catching small fish. But there were so many small striped bass. Like, I had some days I probably caught fifty by myself. But you had to throw them back. You had to throw them back, right. and be honest with you, the small ones eat so much better. Oh, yeah? You know, can you hide one? Every yeah. once in a
2: while, you got to keep one here. Now that. David's going to have like a patrol <laughs> boat around him all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's cool. It's kind of like my favorite fish out there to eat. It's my favorite eating fish, I think, because there's fat to it, but not a ton. It's clean. It flakes. You can eat it raw beautifully. Oh, yeah. But there are a lot of chefs out there. There was this point, I mean, I don't know if you remember... I'm sure you didn't sign up for this, but there was like a, a chef was trying to start a don't use striped bass campaign. Yes. I think it was right around the time I started Oceana and they were like, Bill, you want like you want to sign up for this? And I was like, I don't really want to right now. And I think because I felt like it was being managed properly, and it sounds like it is. I mean sure. it's
1: it it is it's a federally managed fishery. So right. there's there is a lot of rules like, you know, you can't fish striped bass more than three miles. The three-mile separates the federal and state water. So once you go into federal water, it's illegal to catch striped bass. And the fines fines are pretty heavy. But it's very interesting. Ever since they put that law in effect, it seems like all the fish went in the deeper water. So, you know, you go out there and you're looking over your shoulder. Right, yeah. But, you know, there is a lot of rules. And I, I think that this year there was definitely some depletion of the stock. You know, I'm very good friends with a couple of guys who've, commercially fish in Montauk, and right. it wasn't good for them at all. And that usually is really a very good, right. you know, way to judge how the fishery, especially Montauk, because the fish will go there, they'll stay there, right. and they'll just gorge themselves and eat and eat and eat, and then they'll migrate. They'll either
2: cut across to the Chesapeake or they'll right. come down to South Shore, Long Island. Right. Wow, it's crazy, When you, I mean, to think about how they are. What about... What about, like, this year with the scallops in Peconic Bay? Disaster. It's a disaster, right? Nightmare, you know? I mean, if
1: you talk to the Baymen, they're going to tell you it's fertilizer. Right, because huh. what what happened, it's very interesting, right? You had no development out there twenty years ago. Right. Now you have all this development along the water, right? And springs are dry and all of a sudden white right, we had a lot of rain. Right. So what do you put on your grass to make it green when it's dry? You put fertilizer. Right. And then you see the color of the water change to this green. Because they said that last year they had a tremendous set, which means that there was a lot of juvenile scallops. Right. So it should have been a good year. And now all the scallops are dead. Everything's dead.
2: I know. Yeah, that's what I dead. heard. Like there's- and,
1: you know, we've had much warmer water. Right. You You're know. out. You live out there. I fish on water temperature. Right. So I'm constantly looking at the, you know, the thermostat on right. my, my boat to right. see what the water temperature is. Right. And this year, you know, it went up to like, you know, in the 70s. But it gets up into the 70s every year. Right. You know, the other day was at 48 degrees.
2: But is it this time of year when it should be colder?
1: It should definitely be
2: colder. Right. They
1: somebody sent me an article yesterday about um, the Pacific cod. They put a uh, 100% moratorium on the fishery because, because of uh, water temperature. Really, they had a tremendous die-off of eggs.
2: Well, you've just taken over. <laughs> you've just taken over full control of ESCA with a partner. Yeah, with uh, Vic Rallo. And so, how is that uh, going?
1: Going well, you know. Yeah. What I mean. In today's environment, as you know, there's many, many, many challenges in running a business, you know, way beyond just buying fish. Right. Lots of labor issues and, you know, lots of salary issues. and right. You know, New York has become such a um, socialistic environment. Right. That's become very complicated to be in business, even if you know everybody. Right. It doesn't make a difference anymore.
2: There's been a lot of like laws set in place for I guess labor welfare. I guess from an owner perspective, you could work people to as you know to death and pay them very little. <laughs> Profits were huge. You know, I think that's what everybody's dealing with now is that you have even like you know management has things in place like all yes. your sous chefs and stuff you can't after you work them a certain amount the idea is like all right i'll work this guy 20 hours a week but i'm going to make you work you know 150 hours a week and it works that way anymore, and it does, no. you can't allow that and it, and i guess the thing is now we have to adjust to it right there needs so, to be some adjustment because
1: if you look around the city this is business is empty everywhere and not that, just restaurants. Not just restaurants, you know, retail, everything, you know, every kind of business.
2: And- well, the weird thing about retail is like, I'm, ex- example is I'm the classic, you know, nerd for this stuff is that I don't want to go shopping. I hate shopping. And I always hated Christmas shopping. And oh, like now it. that it's like, you know, you could just go online and, and boom. And, you know, everyone's like, don't support Amazon. But I'm like, it's easier to click and pay. Yes, it is. But in our world, I think, like you said, I mean, we need a lot of people, since it's a manual business, we need a lot of people to do a lot of work. Yes. And it now costs a lot of money. Yes. You know, we were looking at our labor report just last week because it was a really busy week and, like, we were just, like, shocked by the amount of hours. But we actually were put in less hours and when I did the math it cost us more still because that's what we're up against like you know payroll very hard is up let me do the quick math in my head which is very bad so it's up like two to three percent right which is a lot on the bottom line when you're trying to get blood from a stone and that's kind of a business we we live in But well that's what it's become right 10 years ago you could still
1: in the restaurant business you could still make you know money right now you make a living Right, you know, and it's unfortunate is that it's come to that point. Right,
2: well, that's what it was like when I had my restaurant. It was more like, after some point, I was just paying everybody. Just they all had a job, and then but nothing was coming out of it. Like yeah. you know, it's not. It wasn't like we weren't. The investors weren't getting what they you know yeah. were supposed to be getting, and I wasn't getting out of it what I was supposed to be getting. And you've sort of taken a step the other way. And I wish you well, because I respect you a lot. And I think what you do is great is that, you know, it's all about big restaurant groups now, like, you know, who are doing, you know, projects. And so, like, with the Lavanos group who I work with, they have several restaurants. My first thing coming to Oceana was like, oh, I have a central office. You know, I was the central office. I was the HR person. I was the bookkeeper-esque. I used to work with somebody, obviously. I'm not that... I'm actually good at math, just to let you know. Um, So, (laughs) but... You can relieve a lot of that when you have a a group. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. But their expectations are also... Everyone
2: knows everything now because everyone watches food TV and they know what things are and how things work.
1: And now three years in, after owning a restaurant, what do you think? you want to go... Back to owning a
2: restaurant? Oh, um, I I know. The things that I miss about owning a restaurant are your freedom to do what you want in terms of outside stuff. You know, I run this organization called Wellness in the Schools, which is a—we bring cooks into the cafeteria to work alongside cafeteria workers for healthy eating, and then we also bring coaches into the recess yard. So I've been involved in that for 12 years now, so— you know, whenever we wanted to host a dinner, I would say host it here. Whenever I wanted to, you know, just have a meeting with, a, uh, some you know, raise some money, be here, and I wouldn't have to charge the organization. And that changed a little, so I had to like, I don't want to say ask permission, but sort of say, hey. You know, I want to do this. Are you guys okay with it? So I guess it is asking permission. Right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and so it takes me away from the restaurant sometimes, right? And, you know, there's that certain guilt like, all right, you're paying me and I'm not there because I'm doing this other thing. So that's one thing I miss. I mean, I miss my restaurant in particular because after seven years of doing it, it became the restaurant I wanted it to become. And so the ended after 10 years was kind of hard. That was, that was the hard part, you know? So yeah. And getting to know the regulars and them, you know, really liking the place. But there wasn't enough of them, obviously.
1: But it was small. It was like a small mom and pop kind of place. Had that feel to it, right. you know. Right. Which is going to be a dinosaur here in New York soon.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's either going to be very small, I guess, right? But you can't do that, say, yeah. in Manhattan really too much
1: more. I don't really more. know how, how people do it.
2: On the Upper West Side, there's so many empty spaces, and so I walk around a lot and I'm like, oh, I should do something there. And then when somebody opens something up and it's not very good, I'm thinking to myself, all right, when's that space going to be available again? Because even if it wasn't very good and people kind of liked it, it would, they would survive. I call them the six-monthers, right? So when you open a restaurant, they go to your restaurant all the time for six months, and then they go to the next hot restaurant, and then they're gone. And you'll never see those people again. You never see them again. So it's always like the telltale for me is like what I always said to my investors and my partners was like, let's see where we are three years from now. You know, because we get a lot of attention. Now it's not gonna last because it everything is much quicker in terms of like what the way people write about. Like you may be the hot person this week, but then next week somebody's gonna be on eaters and they're gonna say this is the hot person to go to, and everyone talks about it. Well it's like Instagram,
1: person. you know. If the kid looks at a picture and goes, Wow, that's great, and they go to your restaurant. Yeah. My mom and dad would go back to that restaurant a second time if it was great.
2: Right, they don't go back. No, exactly. They want to get the picture. They want to say they were there. They want to go like this, and then they're gone. They're done. And and they're on to the next picture because they want to be the cool kid to get there first. Exactly, and
1: it's a big problem in our industry. We're gonna have to figure out, you know, how to address it and what's the next step. It's challenging.
2: The one thing we talk about a lot with our PR company is like, you know, how do we let's bring in influencers? But you know, Oceana is this giant midtown. Business sort of we're in the business district. The one thing I'd like to see more of is more um, later people who are local, which is kind of hard, I guess, because you know, cause where we are and trying to get somebody who's working maybe in the area or downtown to go to the Upper West Side or Upper East Side to get changed, grab their wife or husband and come back down to the restaurant.
1: But you know, the economy's changed a lot. So I I always said that the people that would go out after like eight thirty, nine o'clock were south americans central americans and europeans and they had good economies right and people were coming to new york right now none of them have good economies and then i come into new york so that's your diner at nine o'clock like right ten yeah. years ago was really fueling the whole right
2: well our owners are greek i mean you know what you've seen what happened to greece we should be able to draw a lot of greeks to come to our restaurant just based on the ownership but you know they're they're not no they're not traveling it's too expensive yeah. It's kind of, well, even traveling in the U.S. is kind of expensive. Yeah. So, where have you eaten lately that you like?
1: I've been working a lot. I really haven't got, <laughs> to be honest with you, Bill, I really haven't gotten anywhere.
2: I keep telling David <laughs> that I'm going to come to see him. I'm going to come to see him. But by the time I get out, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go home. <laughs>
1: I, I, same thing. I say, okay, yeah. it's 9 o'clock. Think, you know, they close at 10 o'clock. But by the time I get there, it's 9.30, you know. <laughs> 20 years ago, you could go out at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and it was 100 great restaurants to go to. Yeah. Now, you look, if you find a handful, it-
2: 10 o'clock. Right. Well, listen, when I took over Oceana, I was just like, why are we closing at 10 o'clock on Friday and Saturday nights? We're in like the theater district, we should be, at, you know, all these theater people. So they were like, all right, well, let's try it. We tried it for a few months, but nobody came. Yeah. Even if you tell the concierges or people, and I was talking to someone at the restaurant the other day about concierges and helping restaurants out. A lot of it's like, Everyone knows what to do now because they could get their phone. They go like this: "Hey, where should I eat in the area I am?" And then they go boom. So there, you can't have that sort of connection to the concierge. Totally. You know, which you kind have to of, figure out how to get your name on, on online. So when a person Google's, you know,
1: best restaurant in uh, Midtown West, boom, Esca pops up. You know, or
2: Oceana, or one two. But there are algorithms, I think they they can do that. That you sort of pay for, I think, when you pop up those things. So, but that's something you have to pay for again. But, more thing you have to pay for. I mean, for eighteen years,
1: I stayed open till eleven thirty at night. Now I close at ten, and on Friday and Saturday, I close at eleven. Yeah, this is nobody comes through the doors, you know, and it doesn't pay for right. you know, two people come in and they have a salad and they, sp- they split a bowl of spaghetti and right two glasses of wine. It doesn't afford to labor. Right,
2: right, right. No, and that's, I mean, that's what happened with us. We just weren't, no, we weren't doing anything. Yeah. I mean, there are days <laughs> when it's on, in the slower season. We'll close Mondays at 9 for sure, and then um, 10 o'clock the rest of the day. But there'll be like, say, like a Tuesday night where it's like not happening, and we'll just say, all right, we're closing at 9 so we could save on the labor, Yeah. you know? And we have a very large staff so that it's worth it. Because you're just, even now, like you're concentrating most of your hours between 5 and 8.30, and you know, we did five hundred covers on Saturday night and most of them were before nine o'clock. Yeah, am like,
1: no, we, we same, you know. You know, are in two hundred covers. Yeah. It was almost all before nine o'clock. Yeah.
2: You go to Paris or Rome, or, I mean I went to, it was just in Rome. I mean, like we ate every night, every reservation I made was at nine yeah. o'clock or later because I knew everybody was going out at that time. You know, I wanted to be the, I didn't want to be the seven thirty American tourist, you know. Where'd you eat in Rome? Anywhere uh special? Uh, you know the uh, the place I loved, and it's kind of like my new favorite restaurant, is uh, Risoili. Is that uh-huh. how you pronounce it? And it's kind of a um, it's called Risoili Sa- Salumeria Salumeria con- Samaria, yeah. Salumeria con Cucina. So it's like a deli, you know, with a lot of prosciutto and all the meats they have, and cheeses, and then it's a restaurant. So you sit in there, and it's like, like a little trattoria. Yeah. So, nice. but it was so good, classic Roman food. But the menu is huge. You know, you could have a 24-month prosciutto, 16-month, 20-month, you know, the whole thing with some different mozzarella and great anchovies. I'm not a huge anchovy guy, but oh, no. I oh. ate them all the time there, and now I changed my thinking of anchovies, but... There's another place that I really loved too. is was called Armando al Pantheon, which I stayed n- near the Pantheon, like right outside the Pantheon, and it was literally right across the street. And it was, again, we I had lamb chops, right? So,
1: I love lamb. It
2: was like they're broiled, classic broiled Roman lamb chops. The best thing about it was the way they burned, like not burned it, but like it got it so crisp, the fat, the lamb fat, and it gets that jelly. <laughs> nice.
1: Who says those chefs aren't weird people?
2: <laughs> There's something about meat, fat, pork fat, beef. Like we Crispy. serve a ribeye, that that ribeye fat is just so tasty. You remember Josh Urszky? He would say he yeah. says fat is the meat and meat is the vegetable. You know, so thin is in, his hand, but fat's where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your favorite fish to eat at home? And I guess you, since you fish a lot, that can vary, and the time it, of year.
1: It does vary, you yeah. know. Um. Fluke in the summertime, yeah. fried. Yeah, nothing better. Yeah, you know, uh, clams this time of year, linguine with clam. You know, you go dig some clams. You know, they get that orange color to them. Yeah, and they're like super sweet and really salty. Yeah, I, I like striped bass. Some people like it better in the fall when they're eating all that herring. Right. To me, it tastes a little fishy. I like it in the spring right. when they're eating shrimp. And uh, meat's a little sweeter, not as gamey. But at the end of the day, there's nothing better than a piece of cod. Oh, okay. piece of cod or a piece of sea bass. Yeah. You know, when you get a big jumbo sea bass and you're reeling him up off a wreck, and he comes up, and his head's all swollen, (laughs) and I look at him, I go, dinner.
2: (laughs) I'm actually with you. I love sea bass, too, and that's kind of like my favorite fish. And when you have it at the restaurant, I'll eat it all the time. Um, when we do serve fillets, we do a crispy uh, f- whole fried sea bass, Perfect. which is great. Um, love that. Um, and I also love the linguine and clams; this is my wife's favorite dish. So whenever it's her birthday or whenever she wants something, I like I'll make you some linguine and clams. The funnest thing I did recently was bring blowfish to my nice. family's house and got all of them to eat it and enjoy it, um, which was kind of fun. But to me. The best thing in the world are base scallops. Oh yeah, yeah. And when the it's we tough. get that when I get that delivery from Nantucket base scallops, we get these little four ounce aluminum cups and I take a four ounce aluminum cup and scoop up a bunch of them and I squeeze a little lemon on there, a good olive oil and some salt, and I'm all right. So Yeah, I was eating some pecanics
1: that way the other day. <laughs> Santa I opened up the bag, I just grabbed a handful of them and
2: yeah. Close
1: the door and the refrigerator, you know, popping them. In, so David and I are
2: going to cook a meal of space scalp, crudo, linguine, clams, and sea bass. It's funny.
1: You talk about the blowfish. There were a lot around this year. Yeah. And so I do all my own bait. So in the late summer and early fall, I go throw the net on the spearing. And every time I was throwing the net on the spearing, I was getting, you know, four or five little blowfish, small ones. Yeah. I throw them all back. I love them. Yeah. But they were small. Yeah. Because, you know, it was in like three feet of water, five feet of
2: water, so. It's good eating. Oh. <laughs> Chicken to the sea. Chicken to the sea. <laughs> it's great hanging out with you today, David. Feel the same way, Bill. We should do it more often. <laughs> Definitely, so. Maybe we'll go to Red Lobster later for dinner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. Here's some high quality.
2: <laughs> you know, when I worked with Alan Chappelle... My first meal back from France with my family, as like I went to Jersey, and the next day mom was like, "Let's go out for dinner," and she took me to freaking lobster. Wow, <laughs> I never, I never,
1: I never been. It's like, oh, okay, whatever you guys want. I got out of that subway uh, over by the one by oh, the yeah, Times yeah, yeah. Square all the time. Then I look at it and say, you know, one of these days I gotta go see what it is. What <laughs>
0: Conversations You Can't Ignore. Come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.